Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We continue through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. We have Bibles under your seats. And if you open one of those Bibles, it'll be page 811. So Matthew 5 is on page 811, specifically the section we're going to be looking at, verses 43 to 48. Uh, Welcome to Summit Bible Church. My name is Morgan. I'm the teaching pastor here for those of you who are new. And um, we are teaching, or I've been teaching through the book of Matthew. And we are now in the last little section here of Matthew chapter 5. And so we just go passage by passage, uh, section by section through uh, Bible books, through the books of the Bible. And we are in the book of Matthew in this season together as a church, and probably for many seasons to come, because Matthew's a long book, and there's a lot to unpack from this gospel. But this section is the last section in this uh, chapter of where Jesus is saying, uh, you've heard it said, but I say this. And Jesus really, I mean, if you were to consider Matthew chapter 5, like it's a, a boxing match, um, you and I would have been knocked out a long time ago. And this sixth punch, this sixth section, still hurts. It still exposes uh, sin in our heart and shows us just how far, far we fall under the perfect standard of God. What it really goes after is this idea of self-righteousness. This idea that uh, people would say, you know, I'm good enough to get into heaven. I, I do a, a lot of good things. Or, or look at me compared to this person. I'm, I'm better than them. This self-righteous attitude, thinking that you're good enough to earn heaven. This is the same attitude that the Pharisees had that Jesus were, was addressing in Matthew chapter 5. And he really, he, he quotes Old Testament law, but he's targeting the Pharisees' self-righteousness. They were letter of the law, abiding citizens. That is, they took the letter of the law, don't commit adultery, don't steal, etc. They said, well, okay, I'm okay. I haven't committed adultery on my wife. And yet they were excusing the sin of lust in their heart. The commandment that says, do not murder. They say, okay, well, I haven't murdered a man, but they were angry in their hearts. And Jesus says, you've sinned just the same. You're liable to judgment just the same. See, the issue that Jesus is really getting at is, is righteousness, what real righteousness looks like. And if you actually, if you summarize the principles behind all of these little sections and sayings, I could summarize it with one word. There's one thing that the Pharisees were missing. There's one thing that you, Christian, can apply in through all these principles, and it's a four-letter word that you're familiar with, L-O-V-E, love. Love is at the center. Love flows out of the heart and really is the practical application. Love one another through this whole chapter. I mean, if you truly loved someone, then you're not going to murder them. Nor will you be angry with them in your heart. If you really love someone, then you're not going to commit adultery uh, with them against your spouse, but you're also not going to lust after someone who's not your spouse, if you love them and you love your spouse. If you 
truly love your spouse, then you're not going to divorce them. As Jesus talks about, if you truly love someone, then you're going to keep your word when you tell them you're going to do something. Your yes will be yes. Your no will be no. If you truly love your enemies, then you won't retaliate when they attack you. And then Jesus, at the end of this chapter, really gets to the height of love. The height of love is being able to love your enemies. To love your enemies. So the issue that Jesus is really getting at, I mean, the summation of the law, Jesus says later, is to love one another. If you love God and you love others, then you can fulfill these commands, these principles that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. And so we're getting after the issue of love this morning. And, and one of the most, I, I guess, it's, the, it's a jarring passage. It's a jarring section because it's so anti to our nature. It's so, um, it grates against our flesh to love our enemies. To love our enemies. I mean, Jesus just told us in verses 38 to 42, not to retaliate when people wrong you. He says, don't retaliate. Don't stand against them. Take a slap even. Take a lawsuit. Even take the shackles. He says, lay down your pride. Lay down your property. Even your freedom when people personally attack you. Now, if you remember, these are, these are passive responses to the enemy. Okay? You're not doing anything. You're letting them attack you and you're not resisting them in return. But now Jesus gives you an active command. Not only are you not to resist them, you need to love them and pray for them. This is the height of love. This is a reflection of God's love for us. That while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so this command is really at the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is that Christians have love. And that we have the capacity even to love our enemies. This is a love that the world does not have. And so this is the love that Jesus calls us to in this section. So let's walk through this section. And just go verse by verse. And you can follow along with your outline. The first point is what they say. Remember, Jesus says, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I say. So let's look at first what they say. They say love and hate. That's what they say. Love and hate. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love and hate. You see that there in the text? Now, the first half of that phrase is found in the Old Testament. It's Leviticus chapter 19. It's a familiar saying, a familiar phrase, even to the Jew in this time, and to their law. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. God calls us, Yahweh calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. You know, Jesus quotes this again in his interaction with the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, he quotes it again as the second greatest commandment of the law in Matthew 22, 39. Jesus extols this commandment. He lifts it high. He not only extols it, but he explains it, and then he exemplifies it. Jesus lives it out. 
You might say that if Jesus had only one commandment to give his disciples, only one on how they can relate to one another, he would give them the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the second half of that phrase in verse 43, hate your enemy, that's found nowhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere. So this must be a late addition to the rabbinic writing and tradition. The writings and traditions of the Pharisees. Now, how do you justify a statement like that? It's a strong statement. You know, we were taught in our house growing up, you don't use the word hate. That's strong. You say, I don't like it. Don't say, I hate. You don't even say, I hate this food. Say, you don't prefer it. You don't like it. Hate's a strong word. So how do they justify this word, especially if you don't see this express command in the Old Testament? Okay, so let's try to put ourselves in their shoes. I think the most sincere rabbis that, that want to biblically justify their hatred, they would point to explicit texts that talk about God hating evil. And they would essentially say, if God hates evil, then we can hate evil too. Look at these texts that they would point to. Psalm 5.5. 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Oh, that's a strong statement. Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. There, you're commanded to hate evil. Notice not, the evildoer, though. Commanded to hate wickedness and evil, but not a person. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So the, the Pharisees will point to these texts and say, See, look, at God hates evildoers, or God hates evil, so we ought to hate evildoers, and we ought to hate evil. God has enemies, so we've got enemies then, right? Therefore, hate your enemies. That's where they drew this out of. Now, there are two very important questions to ask and answer to really draw this out, okay? What, what do they say? What are they thinking when they hear, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? You have to ask two questions. First of all, who's your neighbor? The second question, who's your enemy? Okay, you're loving and hating people. Who are you putting in those categories? That's really important to ask and answer in order to really understand how the Pharisees thought about this commandment and how Jesus corrects them. First question, who's my neighbor? Do you remember who asked this question in the Bible? It was the lawyer. Of course, the lawyers, man. They asked these questions. Terry's not even here today. Uh, fellow lawyer in our midst. But who's my neighbor? He asked that to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Now, this lawyer understood that the Word of God tells him to love his neighbor. But here's the real question behind that question. Is my neighbor someone that I want to love? Is my neighbor somebody that I want to love? You might remember how Jesus answers that question. He answers that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the story? The Jewish man is beaten up by robbers. He's left half dead on the road. Several people pass by him. Only one was a good neighbor and helped the man out. Do you remember who that was? Was it his kinfolk? Was it his fellow countrymen? Was it his pastor in the synagogue? 
No, it was who? It was the Samaritan. The people that Israel despised. A man from those people was a good neighbor to this Jewish brother. The Samaritans were mixed blood. That's why the Jews did not like them. Mudbloods for you Harry Potter fans. They were mixed. And Jews would even typically travel around the area of Samaria because they didn't want to interact with these people. They were so disdained. They hated them. And there's a long history there. But Jesus uses a Samaritan in this story specifically to show them who their neighbor was. To show them who they ought to love. But see, the Jew in the first century was thinking, when they thought neighbor, they're thinking, well, first and foremost, fellow Jews. Those are my neighbors, my countrymen, my kinfolk. Those are the people that I'm called to love. And second, if there was a second, they might think of a foreigner who's living among them. Because see, in the law, God told them, you need to treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. So the law tells them to love the foreigner, but the foreigner who's living among them. And so they would say, okay, well, I'll love the foreigner, but as long as they what? Become like me. Start to talk like me, walk like me, look like me, use our language, practice our tradition, our religion, as long as they became a native. In other words, who is my neighbor? This is their answer. Someone who's easy to love. Who's my neighbor? Someone who's easy to love. Is that your answer? Who's your neighbor? Is it only the people that are easy to love? When God's word says, love your neighbor, who do you think about? Who's at the top of your love list? Who receives your favor? Who gets your warm welcome? Is it just the people that are easy? that make you feel comfortable, that are like you? Second question, who's my enemy? This is an important question to ask because these are the people that Israel hated. Hate your enemy, they said. So who's on Israel's hate list? Well, you've got Samaritans, mixed blood. Okay, and Then you have Gentiles in general. This is foreign peoples, foreign nations, because they thought, well, foreign... People bring in different culture, different language. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. So, well, they don't like that. They might have thought of the Romans at this time because the Roman Empire was really oppressing them, enslaving them as a people. They thought of tax collectors. You remember tax collectors? These people were traitors, they thought, to their country. They were the worst because they're extorting their own people on behalf of the oppressor, the Roman Empire. So they didn't like tax collectors either. Here are just some people on their hate list. Who's my enemy? This would be their answer. Anyone who's easy to hate or dislike, if you prefer that word. Anyone who's easy to hate. Who's my neighbor? It's anyone who's easy to love. Who's my enemy? Anyone who's easy to hate. People unlike me. People who are difficult or, or make me uncomfortable. People who hurt, attack, or oppress me. Or maybe they have hurt, they have attacked, and they've oppressed me in the past. 
The Jew was thinking non-Jews, those are my enemies, ex-Jews even, and the tax collectors, the ones who don't practice my law, my tradition, my religion. Oh, those gross sinners, those are my enemies. They openly forsake God's law. These are the people that are easy to hate, easy to dislike, not get along with. Let me ask you, who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who do you find easy to love or easy to hate? Is your answer much different than that of the Jews? Isn't it easy for you, for us, to love those who reciprocate it, right? Who love us back, who give us something in return? Isn't it easy for us to love people who we think deserve it? Don't your affections gravitate toward people that are like you? That talk like you, look like you, share experiences with you? Isn't it easier to get along with people who have the same political views, the same religion? Do you only love those who are easy to love? Let me ask you conversely again. Isn't it easy for you to hate those who reciprocate hate? Who are difficult? Who've wronged you, shamed you? Don't you avoid those people naturally? Do you tend to steer clear of people who don't look like you or talk like you? Isn't it easy to sneer at people that don't share the same political views? They have different opinions or even are of a different religion. I believe today more than ever, in a hostile and especially divided culture, these categories are clearer in our minds. We have people that are not like us that are easy to hate and people that are like us and that are easier to love. And there's such divide. Such divide. I don't think we're much different than the Jews and the clear divide in their minds in the first century. We struggle with the same issues. So let's look, now that we're kind of getting our minds in in this clear divide of the first century, and seeing the categories of who are the neighbors, who are the enemies, who uh, who am I loving, who am I hating, now that you're kind of feeling that, let's look and see what Jesus says. Because Jesus' message is totally contrary to that of this world. Totally contrasting what the Jews thought they were doing right when they were obeying the law. Jesus says, point number two, love and pray. Love and pray. Not love and hate. Love and pray. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, here's the contrast, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus skips right over the neighbor. He skips right over the person that's easy for you to love. He goes, no, I'm not interested in how you treat those people. I already assume you treat them well. I'm I'm talking about the people that are easy for you to hate. The people you don't like. I want to tell you how to treat those people. You know what you need to do? You need to love them. Love them. He doesn't say, avoid them. He doesn't say, mind your own business. Stay away from them. He says, love your enemies. Actively love them. And if you've been in a church, you've heard a pastor talk about the love of God, you know that to love your enemies is a little more than sending them a fruit basket and a Hallmark card. Loving your enemies means that God is calling you to be selfless toward them. To be others-oriented. To put their needs before yours. 
to set your affections upon them, not because they deserve it or earned it. In fact, most often they haven't. Those are the people that you're called to love, and your love even goes, at some points, beyond what's comfortable and will cost you something. Christian love is sacrificial. That's the same love that Jesus is talking about here. And that needs to be directed towards not just your friends, your family, those who look like you, talk like you, your enemies, he says. Wow. And if you're looking for a demonstration, what does this look like? How how could I even start by having this kind of love? Look no further than the love of God towards sinners like you and I. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still shaking our fist at heaven saying, I don't want your rules, I want my own. While we were standing opposed to God as His enemies. While we were diving head deep into our sin, our pleasures, our lusts, our pride. While we were sinners. While we were enemies. Christ died for us. Gave His life in love for us. There's your model, Christian. There's our model for how to love our enemies. Look no further than Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Incredible, incredible love God displays toward us. Jesus gives us a second command in this verse that I don't want us to glance over. He says not only to love your enemies, he says to pray for those who persecute you. If you're wondering, how can I best love my enemies? How can I best love them? Here's where you start. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for those who even persecute you, the text says. J.C. Riles writes this, prayer is the highest charity. It's the highest good for another person. He says, they love me best who love me in prayer. In other words, the people who pray for me are the ones who love me the most. Do you love your enemies in prayer? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for them or against them? He's not talking about reaching back to the Psalms, those precatory Psalms, you know, and sending the fire from heaven towards your enemies. God, I pray that you would smite them. No, he says pray for them. Pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 8, Paul gives instruction to Timothy. Gives us kind of a hint of what this might look like. He says, first then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I think we forget sometimes that all means all. And that all people includes who? Your enemies. They're definitely included in the all. So he urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, even for the kings, presidents, and for all who are in high positions. Even the ones, all who are in high positions, even the ones we don't like, or the ones we don't agree with. He says this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why is this good? Why would it be pleasing in the eyes of a Savior? Because here's the reason right here. Who desires all people, all people, even your enemies, to come or to be saved and come to the knowledge 
of the truth. Sometimes I think we forget that people have souls and that there's two destinies for them, isn't there? They're either, they either know God and we're going to see them in heaven or they don't know God and they're destined for hell without a Savior. And so we look at these people in high positions. We don't like the decisions they're making and we're kind of look at them with scorn and disdain. Ugh, I can't believe he did this or she said that. And we forget that they have souls and that God desires us to pray for them that they might be saved, that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. Here's the idea. Here's the picture. You're taking even your persecutor to the heavenly throne room and you're advocating for them on their behalf to God your Father. God, I pray that you would save this person. I want them to be saved. I want them to know you, God. What a picture of love. Even to someone who would hurt you, hurt your family, offend you. This is what we are called to do as Christians. This is extraordinary, extraordinary love. Let me ask you again, when was the last time that an enemy made your prayer list? Praying for friends and family? Yes, important. Praying for the church? Amen. But when's the last time you prayed for an enemy? This is countercultural. It's unnatural, but it is godlike. You know that? It's godlike. There's two reasons that Jesus gives us in the text here that we see two reasons to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. First, love like your father. Love like your father. Look at verse 45. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that, here's the reason why, you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. When you imitate the characteristic of your Father, some say, oh, well, it's in the genes. Makes sense. Listen to me. You want want to know what the dominant gene that is evident, visible in the lives of God's children is? What's that dominant gene that you can see in every single one of them? It's a four-letter word. Love. Christians are known by their love. Extraordinary love. A love that doesn't come from this world, obviously. A love that doesn't look like any other love. But a love that comes from heaven. That's selfless, sacrificial, and even goes to the extent of loving enemies. Love like your Father. Look like your Father in His love. 1 John 4, 7-8 through 8 says this, so clear. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love then doesn't know God, because God is love. Do you look like your Father in love? Now, how does our Father love His enemies? Look at verse 45. The second half. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The common grace and love of God is extraordinary. I mean, the fact that God doesn't immediately strike down sinners when they oppose Him, when they blaspheme His name, when they kill one another, when they commit adultery on one another, when they worship idols, when they slander each other, when they gossip, the fact that God doesn't strike them down on the spot is extraordinary. The fact that God doesn't strike you and I down 
when we sin, is extraordinary. That's just His common love. The sun still rises. The sun sets on our lives. I mean, the ground should be opening up every day and swallowing us, like in the times of Joshua and Achan. There should be hailstorms. Hailstorms every day on every city. Because every city is like Sodom and Gomorrah. There should be dead bodies on the floors of our churches, like sinners, like Ananias and Sapphira who lie against the Holy Spirit. We should all be judged in the same way. We've, we've lied. There should be a million floods. A million floods. Because wickedness is rampant on the earth like the days of Noah. But God is faithful to His covenant. He's faithful to His promises. The sun rises. The sun sets. The wicked, they eat and drink. They have, uh, they're even prosperous sometimes. They run successful businesses. They may even be given a quote-unquote happy life, free from a lot of troubles and concerns. And all of that is a gift from God to them. God's generosity and love to allow them to breathe a single breath in the day. So, love like Him. Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? Why would I do that? Because your father does. And you are a child of God. So you reflect his character and love others the same way. Second reason, love like your father. Second reason, love not like this world. You remember the whole section on being salt and light. We are to be other than Uh, Different than this world, tasty and shining brightly to reflect the glory of God. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 47. If you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, if if you love those who love you, good for you. You're just like the vilest sinners you know, tax collectors. If you give a a warm hello only to those who look like you, good for you. Every other ethnicity on the planet does that. Your love is common. It's ordinary. It's no different than this world. You only love those who reciprocate it. Only love those who are easy and natural to love. That's sinner-like. That's world-like. And you are not of this world, Jesus says. You're salt and light. Christians are called to be different. So Jesus calls you to an uncommon, an unordinary, not of this world love. A love kind of like this. Officer Richard Houston was shot and killed on December 3rd of last year. I don't know if you heard the story. His 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, spoke at his memorial service. Her words were filled with an uncommon, unordinary, not of this world love. Here's what she said, and I quote, My heart aches for those who don't know Jesus. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. Part of me wishes that I could despise the man who killed my father, but I just can't do it. All I can find myself doing is hoping and praying that this man would truly know Jesus. When I heard that the man who brought, the man who killed my father was brought to a stable condition 
after his arrest, I was relieved. And I pray, even to this day, that someday down the road, I'll get to spend time with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but to share Jesus with him. Come on. That's a love not like this world. That's uncommon. It's extraordinary. Not of this world, love. But that is the love of a child of God. That's the genuine, true love of the child of God that's been given to her by God Himself, shown to her by God Himself. Jesus, the righteous one, dying on her behalf. So she looks out and even the worst sinners, even the sinners that have sinned against her personally by taking her father's life, she loves them. Do you have this godlike, uncommon, unordinary, not of this world love? Do you have it? Finally, verse 48 is very important. I call this the capstone verse of this whole section. So point number three, the capstone like father, like child. The capstone, like father, like child. Look at verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You need to know that there's a lot of force behind that first phrase. You must be perfect. There's a lot of force behind that. It looks like a command in the English, but if you look in the Greek, it's actually a future indicative. It could be translated this way. You will be perfect. Now, sometimes you know you give your child a command. Clean your room, right? That has some force to it. How much more force has this statement? You will clean your room. You're, you're saying, hey, I'm commanding you to do this, and I will see it finished. There's an expectation that you follow through. This is an order that must be followed. You will be perfect. Now the word perfect is a Greek word that could also be translated mature, complete, fully developed. Sure, eventually means sinlessness, but what Jesus is really getting after here is a holistic righteousness. A holistic righteousness. That's what he's been talking about this whole sermon. A righteousness that proceeds from the heart. Not one that just fakes it on the outside, but that is lived out from the inside. And you remember, Jesus raises the bar, right? From where the Pharisees and the scribes had lowered it. He takes it back up to God's standard, which is perfection. Matthew 5.20, you remember this verse. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has been exposing the holes in our hearts. You may think you're innocent, but you're guilty of murder because you've been angry. You may think you're pure, but you're guilty of adultery because you've lusted. You may think you're free, but you're guilty of adultery in your divorce. You may think you're a, a man or a woman of your word, but you're guilty of falsehood and unfaithfulness. You may think your vengeance is justified, but retaliation is sinful. You may think that you can hate your enemies, but God's children love their enemies. How many of us get away with reading through Matthew 5, Scott, clean? None of us. We've all failed. 
Shot after shot, Jesus goes after the gaping holes in our lives and he exposes our inadequacy. Now he says this, and you must be perfect. You will be perfect. You have to be asking the question, how can that be so? How can I be perfect when you've just been exposing all the wrong? The answer is in the second phrase. You may have missed it when I read it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, the one born of God will bear the family resemblance. If you've been truly born of God, then you will start to progress and pursue the perfection that Jesus Christ is talking about in this sermon. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. So the real question is this. Have you been born of God? Have you truly been born again? Transformed from the inside out? Are you just practicing religion on the outside? Are you trying to make it by your good works, your external behavior? Or have you been truly transformed from the inside out and you see these commands from Jesus Christ and you desire to be perfect, to be whole, to be complete in them? That's the question. Have you been born of God? Do you know God? Because those who know God, those who have been born of God, will imitate Him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 1 John 3.9 Very clear. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in Him. He can't keep on sinning because He has been born of God. Are you a child of God? A true child of God? Or are you a child of this world, a child of the devil, one who does not know God? That's the question. How can you be whole? How can you progress in your sanctification? How can you one day be perfect just as He is perfect? You need to be born again. You need to be born again. And that's not something that you can do yourself. That's not something that you can change on a dime or At a whim, that's something that God needs to do to you. Who are those who have been born again? Those who have faith. Those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that He came to this earth, descended and became a man, but lived the perfect righteous life that you and I couldn't live. And He was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And He made a great sacrifice there. He died. He took your sin. Even though He was a man without sin, He took your sin, and bore it on His shoulders. And He died burying that sin in the ground. And He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later. Rose to new life. Declaring victory over the power of sin and death. And also giving you the opportunity to have a new life in Him. So that you have a new heart, new desires, a new path, a new Father, a new Master. Eternal life. How do you receive this great gift of salvation? You believe that this is who Jesus is. And you surrender your life to Him, entrusting your whole life to Him and to Him alone. And the one who does that will be born again, regenerated, made new, 
given the ability to practice righteousness genuinely. Not an external fake righteousness, but a genuine one. And you will progress. And you will become more sanctified. You will start to walk out these commands. These commands that are unnatural. This kind of love that seems foreign. You will begin to actually experience it and display it. And show it to other people. You will look like a kingdom citizen. A a child of God. A disciple of Jesus Christ. And you will look forward to the hope that one day He will return and make you perfect. Sinless, spotless perfect. You're not going to achieve sinlessness in this life, but one day you will when He receives you in glory. Look at 1 John 3, 2-3. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You want to know practically how you can become more pure? How you can live out the righteousness that Jesus calls us to in Matthew chapter 5? How you can be more poor in spirit, one who mourns the meek, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, the mercy, the pure in heart, a peacemaker, one who is pure from the heart, one who loves others from the heart, salt and light in this world, set the hope of Jesus Christ before you. Look at Him and you will become pure if you're truly His child. Dwell on Jesus Christ in the Gospel. Set your mind on Him and He will transform you. Christian, He'll transform you into this uncommon, unnatural, countercultural, not of this world, lover of people. And it's an extraordinary light and testimony to the character of your God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Oh, thank you for the correction to my own heart, God. How easy for is it for me to go back to the natural and to disdain people, God, and to have ill will towards people even. God, I hesitate to say that it's hate because that's such a strong word, but Lord, You know that sometimes even in my heart there's hate towards people. Forgive me of that. Forgive us of the hate in our heart. And conform us more into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved even His enemies. Who while He was hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them. for They know not what they do. Make us like Jesus. Help us. We need your help to be more like Christ. I pray that at Summit Bible Church, these people would display an uncommon, unordinary, not of this world love towards not only one another, but towards the outside world. And that it would be an incredible witness and testimony to you, God. That it would give you glory and point others back to you. God, I pray that if your word is working in the hearts of people here, who may not know you, who may realize that they're not really a child of God, that they would repent of their sins and believe by faith in Jesus Christ and alone for salvation, even today. That they would do that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.